Hello and welcome to Biblical Breadcrumbs. In this episode, we'll be in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1, going through just this first story here. Should be the first 11 verses is what we're looking at today. Now, um, hopefully the audio works all right. I'm trying a slightly different recording setup, seeing how this one's going to work. And so um, thanks for bearing with me again, and just let me know if something gets unbearable. Now, in Matthew uh, 21, of course, we're following on the heels of Matthew 20, pretty obviously. Uh, talking about the last couple of episodes that we've spent in Matthew 20. And, of course, I, I redirect, I guess, for an intro to this section. Think about Matthew 20 in verse 20, right? Um, where James and John, these disciples, these two disciples of Jesus and James and John's mom, they all come to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, uh, can we... can?" James and John have pretty elevated places in your kingdom, to which Jesus says, that's not really up to me to decide. You got to ask God about that. So you can have all the trials and you can have um, some extra like difficulties in your life. Sure. But, you know, God's in charge of who gets what position in the kingdom. And then right after that, of course, these uh, other 10 disciples get really irritated at James and John. And whatever the reasoning for that was, here's one of the stories from last time where Jesus said, hey, the Gentiles do that. The Gentiles hold it against their brother, or they aren't merciful, or they're unkind. Whatever it is, the Gentiles do that. You don't do that. And so you instead, you serve like Jesus serves. You serve like the Son of Man serves. You know, if you want to be noticed by God, if you want to be high up in the kingdom, be the slave, be the servant, be like God, and then you'll be high up in God's kingdom. Wow, who'd have thought that to be noticed by God, you should be like God, and as he calls you to be? It's, you know, it's a pretty obvious message, but the disciples just don't get it. Well, I wonder how often we get that. And so, of course, the next story then is these two blind men on the road. Blind people, nobody cares about them, right? They're just cripples. They don't donate anything to society. And then Jesus is walking along the road, and they're just trying to take up his time and take up his attention, and he's got so much better to do. So they're calling out, and and the people around, the crowds around are saying, no, uh, just ignore those guys. Hey, keep quiet. You're unimportant. You're, like, just sitting on the side of the road. You don't matter. And, of course, Jesus stops everything. And he calls out to them, and he says, hey, how can I help you? That's his attitude. That's his service. That's what makes him the greatest of all of the kingdom. And so, of course, when they ask him to heal them, he does. Moved with compassion, he does. And immediately they could see, and they use that vision to be able to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And, of course, we pick up from there, starting in chapter 21, in verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on the coal, uh, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we're, here we have this, this picture, right? It's about Passover time. We're entering into the, this is the Sunday of what we would sometimes term the Passion Week. Now, I don't really use that terminology much. 
um, and it, but it, it's the it's the one week leading up until Easter, right? Mid to late April, I think. Um, this is the Sunday before, and, and so he's getting near Jerusalem. He's bringing all of these huge crowds in because they've got to come in like for that Thursday night is Passover, you know, they've got to come in for Passover anyway. And so he's bringing all these crowds in all these people with him and they all get near Jerusalem. They get to the spot named Bethphage. I don't really know where that is, except the Mount of Olives is, I think it's like two miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but that's what I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, it's pretty close by, not quite in the city, but it's decently close by. So Jesus gets around the right area, and then he sends two of his disciples, and he says, hey, go into that village, and you're going to find a donkey. So steal it, and if anyone questions what you're doing, you tell them the Lord needs it, and then everything's going to be fine. Well, what an interesting address that Jesus did. Well, what an interesting set of commands Jesus just gave them. I mean, going and really stealing a donkey, that's not really a very Jesus-like command, right? That's not how that would seem, at least at first, until you realize, what is what is he doing here? Whose is the donkey? Who does the donkey belong to, right? Does it belong to the human who tied it to the fence, or does it belong to the God who created it? Does it belong to the person who who put it up near his house? Or does it belong to the one who made it come into being in the first place? See, Jesus owns this donkey. It's his. He is the authority, right? He is the king. He is over this thing. Everything was created through him and 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 in him and without him nothing was made that was made. Right? Jesus is over creation, and so he can just go to a bit of creation and say, "Hey, uh, I have need of you, and nobody can say anything about it. And of course, that's what happens is he just goes out and he, he grabs, the, he gets this donkey, and nobody says anything about it. Or rather, Matthew says something about it in verses 4 and 5. Hey, this is a prophecy. This is something that's special. This is something that was called out ahead of time. This is a prophecy that took place. And now this prophecy is actually an interesting one. It's a combination of a couple different passages, one from Isaiah 62, specifically verse 11, uh, and another one from Zechariah 9, specifically birth, uh, verse 9, um, putting those together, kind of like mixing them up. But you look at Isaiah 62, and it's in verse 11. I'll read verses 10 through 12. Uh, Isaiah 62, verse 10 uh, God is saying, go out, go out through the city gates, prepare a way for the people, build it up, build up the highway, clear away the stones, raise a banner for the peoples. Look, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, look, your salvation is coming. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. And they will be called the holy people, the Lord's redeemed, and you will be called cared for, a city not deserted. Look, context of Isaiah verse uh, of Isaiah 62 is we're supposed to ease people's way. We're supposed to open up this highway, this pathway. We're supposed to make it simple for people to travel down because guess what? Salvation is coming. Salvation is going to be here and Jesus, God is bringing in mercy for his people and salvation. Look at verse 11, Isaiah 62:11. Look, your salvation is coming. 
his wages, what he reward, uh, what he earned, is with him, and his reward accompanies him. Uh, his wages that he earns and his reward that he gives out um, to other people, and they'll be called the Lord's redeemed. Right, God is coming. He's going to save his people. He's going to ease their way and bring them into his own salvation. But then you add this to Zechariah 9. In Zechariah 9, specifically in verse 9, but, um, man, uh, there are so many, there's so much that goes into this chapter. Uh, it's really the whole uh, chapter of Zechariah 9 and, and 10, and really a little bit of 11, maybe, uh, for, for context. But let's just read a little bit of Zechariah 9, um, verse, oh, let's see, Zechariah 9, verse 5, sure, uh, Ashkelon will see it and be afraid, Gaza too, they will writhe in great pain, as for Ekron, her hope will fail, there will cease be, to be a king in Gaza, Ashkelon will become uninhabited, a mongrel people will live in Ashdod, I will destroy the pride of the Philistines, um, down in verse 8, this is God speaking, I will encamp at my house as a guard against those who march back and forth, against, uh, and no oppressor will march against them again, for now I have seen it with my own eyes, so rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, and shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you, he is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." So I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. You know, there's a lot that's happening in Zechariah 9, but here's the easy part. Here's the simple, the, the very base level of what's going on here. God is humbling his enemies. He is destroying those who are against his people in the early part of chapter 9. He's protecting his people in verse 8. And in verse 9, he's bringing them a salvation. He's bringing them their king. And their king is going to make it where they don't even have to fight for themselves because God is going to fight for them. And that's what verse 10 is about. Salvation is coming. God destroys the enemies. And God rescues and redeems his own people. So, you hear these verses being called out in Matthew 21. And what kind of picture do you have going on in your head? How is this going to play out? Right? What's this going to look like when the king is coming and he's mounted on a donkey? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, here's what these people thought it looked like. You in Matthew 21? Let's read uh, starting in verse 6. Matthew 21, in verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal, then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So what do you see here in verse 6? Well, the disciples do exactly what Jesus said, and they just go out, they find this donkey, they get it, they bring it back. And what do they do? Well, they lay their coats on them, their, their clothes, their outer garments 
on the donkey and its child or the the just the child donkey um translation differences but um yes they they lay their coats on this animal on this beast of burden you know maybe this is symbolic in some way maybe it's just like making a nice saddle so that it's a little bit cushioned riding on the donkey maybe it's just so that jesus doesn't like have to just sit directly on it i don't know but it's super nice of them it's very respectful of them and of course you see this also clothes in the road cutting branches from the trees um spreading them on the road just like paving paving out the the dirt pathway right so that when you walk, you don't send up clouds of dust. You don't send up, like, a bunch of dirt that then gets on your clothing. You kind of preserve that. And it's a whole lot nicer. Now, this is not going to happen for regular people. This is a thing for those who are special. This is even a thing for royalty. Um, in in First Kings chapter 1, I think it's verse 30-ish. I looked it up earlier. First um, Kings chapter 1 when they go to anoint Solomon as the king of Israel, um, Solomon, David's son, when they go to anoint, uh, anoint him, they, um, they have him ride on David's donkey, and uh, David's mule, and that's how Solomon goes to get coronated. So you have that picture here, and, and then for the garment picture, maybe you think of something like 2 Kings 9 and verse 13. This is an obscure one, and it's, as far as I know, the only place this is noted, um, but when, I think it's Jehu is becoming king after he has this huge military coup, when everybody sees that he wins, and now he's the new king of Israel, um, 2 Kings 9 and verse 13 everybody like lays out their coats for him to walk on and says okay he's king now right it's a sign of royalty this garb in the road this 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 donkey being ridden to a coronation ceremony this is the 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 way jesus is expressing himself is this imagery of a king who's coming in how do you see verse five Right, your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey. Well, here you literally have that. And here salvation is coming through this king. Okay, what does it look like? And so let's make his coronation ceremony something very special. Let's make it something that's noteworthy. Let's make it very, very special. Let's just throw stuff in the road. Right, let's make his path straight. Let's make that easy on him and do good for him. Let's show these signs of royalty. Let's let's do our best to display Jesus as the king that he is. And what better way to do that than with a lot of fanfare going in? Look at verse 9. Right? They're not just spreading stuff out in the road. They are shouting. And they're shouting these these words, Hosanna, which means Lord save us to the son of David. Interesting that they would shout, Lord save us, to the man Jesus, who, well, that's his Greek name, um, the uh, the English version of the name Jesus, or sorry, not the English version, that's <laughs> terribly off. The, uh, the Jewish version of the name Jesus is just Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And so they're shouting, Hosanna, Lord save us, to the man named the Lord saves. Intriguing how that works out. Um, and then, of course, verse 9 is just a quote from uh, Psalm 118, another quote. Uh, Psalm 118, verse 26 especially, uh, 25 and 26, 
But let's go ahead and pick up in verse 22. Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord, and it was wondrous in our sight. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we will bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. So bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God. I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. This is the context of the verse that they're quoting. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed, and Lord save us. They're quoting from the passage that says the stone that the builders rejected is has become the cornerstone. And spoiler alert for where Matthew's about to go, um, these ones who are calling out for the Lord to save them are about to become some of those who reject him as the cornerstone and who refuse to see Jesus for who he is. So Psalm 118, they're crying out loud. They're about to fulfill it in more ways than one. But for right now, for right now, for this passage in Matthew 21, this is the war cry of the king. This is his fanfare as he approaches the city, as he enters the enemy territory, and as he seeks to stake his claim on his kingdom. And the question is, who is this invader? Who is this one who's coming in? Who is this one who's taking over the city? Well, it's that Jesus guy from Galilee. It's that backwater prophet that nobody knows of, but he's kind of got a big following right now. He's kind of got an army right here that's that's following him in. And, and maybe we should pay attention. At least we should respect this guy a little bit. Because he has some strong supporters, or well, at least a lot of supporters right now. This is the king, and he's invading what is going to become his capital city. And now we get to wait and see what is the f- what's the first thing he's going to do with it. And that's what we'll talk about next week. But before we go, before we just wrap everything up, just a couple of thoughts from from this passage, this these few verses, uh, a couple of ideas that came to mind as I was reading it. Uh, first one's in verse 3, where it says, where Jesus says, If anyone says anything to you, you say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Of course, um, this is talking about the donkey. How did Jesus get the donkey? I don't know. Right? Because it seems weird. I don't think, as much as I said, oh, he's stealing a donkey, um, I don't think he's actually stealing it. And so, of course, the the common expression or the common idea that is voiced, um, or at least the one that I've heard, is, hey, Jesus, like, paid for this beforehand. He probably arranged with somebody in the city. He probably, like, set this up beforehand and knew there was going to be a donkey there and already had, like, paid for it and everything. Um, Did that actually happen? Well, I would say probably. I, I would say that's at least very likely that that happened. But Matthew doesn't say that. You know, sometimes the details that aren't there actually do fill in quite a lot. Now, of course, don't argue from Sile. I wouldn't insist that Jesus didn't pay for this donkey. 
but I wouldn't insist that he did. What I would say is either way, you know, the, either way, what Matthew, what details Matthew includes and what details Matthew like brushes over highlights the theme that Matthew's going for. When Jesus says, you're going to find this donkey, that shows that he he is aware, right? He knows what's going on. He, he is aware of the state of his kingdom. When he commands that they just take it, that shows he has power over it. And when he says, hey, if anybody tries to question you, just like drop my name and they're going to stop, you see his authority over everything. Regardless of the exact specifics of how Jesus got a hold of this donkey, you know what Matthew's silence on that says? It, it, it shows us a picture of a Jesus who has authority. And of course, it might have looked a little bit different if we had every single detail, but that's what Matthew's trying to emphasize. Look, silence does speak a little bit. It's not going to tell you what to do or what to not do, right? Silence is not permission to do something that you uh, don't have verification for in scripture, right? If you don't have like a, a, a command, if you don't have some example of a good person who's doing it and God seems to approve, then don't do that. Silence isn't permissive. It's not authority in itself, but it does add some details. And so while you're reading this, whenever you see something and you're like, wow, I wonder why Matthew didn't say that. Well, maybe there's just an interesting point there. Um, and a thought to add in. Of course, that's just my supposition. That's just like my idea, and you can have a totally different idea, and that's fine. Just make sure you recognize that, and then teach it, and tell other people that, hey, this is my idea. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't, um, but Matthew's silent here, and I wonder why that is. So there's your question. Why doesn't, why, why don't we get told well, I think it's because we don't need to know, and it's showing Jesus's authority. And of course, that brings us to our second point, and the main one for this this section. You see it, I, I see it most in verse 6, but really in all of it. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. Jesus has authority. Jesus has sovereignty. Jesus is in control, and he says, you do this thing in this way, and they do exactly that thing in exactly that way. They are obedient to a T. They do everything that Jesus said, not a, not any more, not any less, and everything goes just fine. Jesus is king. He is over everyone and everything. He's got his red carpet rolled out, metaphorically speaking. He's got his city that he's going in to conquer, also metaphorically speaking. He's got his army, metaphorically speaking, and his, his war cry, his his taunt song, um, metaphorically speaking, right? He's got all of these pictures of being a king. He's emulating riding on a donkey like Solomon did. He's emulating walking on coats, even like Jehu and probably some other kings did. He's emulating these prophecies from Isaiah and Zechariah back in verse 5. Jesus is authority. Jesus is sovereignty. This is the Jesus whom God talks about. This is the Jesus whom the Bible talks about. Do you accept that? Or do you not? Right? God lets you listen to that picture and obey it? Or God lets you listen to that picture and reject it? And that's up to you. That's totally and completely up to you. 
But the question in verse 10, who is this guy? That's the question all of us have to answer. And so, hey, Jesus is authority. He is sovereign. He is king. And it's up to us to determine whether or not we are going to decide to see him that way. God will let us ignore him or God will let us listen to him. But either way, we've got to think, do we really accept who Jesus is and who the Bible says he is? Because this is the picture that we have. So, hopefully that's helpful. That's something for you to think about. Maybe you get a couple of ideas from that and they just kind of spin around in your head all day. Um, Hopefully that's a help to you. And I hope that's a blessing. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you learned something. And um, as always, I'll see you on the next episode of Biblical Breadcrumbs.